Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, thanks for dropping by New Books in Science Fiction, where authors reveal their deepest, darkest secrets. No, actually, this is where they talk about their new books and what's on their minds. This is the Tangled Web She Weaves episode. I'm excited to have with me today Alex E. Harrow, whose debut novel, 10,000 Doors of January, was a Los Angeles Times bestseller and finalist for the 2020 Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and World Fantasy Awards. Today, we're going to talk about her second book and new novel, The Once and Future Witches, which is already earning acclaim and happens to be at the moment that we're recording on this rainy, at least in New York, Veterans Day. Where was I? The book happens to be in the semifinal round of the Goodreads Choice Awards. Alex Harrow is not only a writer, but a teacher and a historian, and she is on the line with me now from her home in Kentucky. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so, so much for having me. It's an honor. How are you? And I don't usually start interviews with that question, or I, <laughs> but this year of all years, I think it's important to check in on people's states of, of spirit when I talk to them. It's just been such a crazy time. It has been a crazy time. And that's now like a loaded question. I can't just brush it off and be like, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. Um, I am fine, though. I found that roughly like a week ago, for whatever reason, who knows, my mental state just hugely improved. (laughs) I feel as if some sort of national burden has been lifted. So I'm actually doing a lot better. I know exactly what you mean, but for some reason in this past week, I'm getting more and more uncomfortable, but we'll won't even go there. I mean, let's just keep our fingers crossed. We'll just, yes, we'll go forward and maybe with the power of democracy and maybe a little magic, maybe there's a spell, you know, that could be... If anybody woven. has one, now's the time. I'm just saying. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's dive in and talk about the once and future witches. To me... The book feels both familiar and also fresh. And by familiar, I mean it's a fairy tale and has some of the things a reader expects in a fairy tale. It, in fact, begins with the clause, once upon a time, and it has witches and spells, and there are a lot of things that come in three. All those things are pretty common elements in fairy tales, and yet you're definitely taking us in a new direction. There are witches, but there are also suffragettes. And your three protagonists rebel against the rules society imposes on them. Maybe you can start just by talking about what you like about fairy tales and why they are such powerful vehicles for storytelling. And then maybe just talk about your own spin. What's the Alex Harrow sensibility that you've infused your version, your your fairy tale that is the once and future witches? <laughs> I think it's so like uh, flattering to imply that I have a sensibility. That's fantastic. Um, no, so the thing that I like about fairy tales is everything. I love fairy tales. I've always loved fairy tales. And, and it's not the stories themselves so much because like they're often like 
narratively unsatisfying and weird and or predictable in other ways like it's not just the stories it's the fact that i think that fairy tales give us this amazing shared language like through a series of extremely weird historical flukes we all ended up knowing or roughly knowing a set of like oral traditions from germany in the early 19th century you know like the Grimm's influence has been so outsized compared to what those stories actually were but like through Victorian obsessions and Disney, everyone now knows what a glass slipper means. And a Cinderella story has all these implications and Sleeping Beauty. And I love that we can talk to each other in this sort of emotional shorthand through fairy tales. I think that's fantastic. And I don't know that I'm doing anything particularly new. Like fairy tale retellings are a genre in and of themselves, right? But I think one of the things that I hope that I'm maybe participating in that I think a lot of other writers are doing right now is kind of self-aware retellings. Like you're not only just retelling this original story, you're aware that it's been told again and again and again, and that things have this sort of resonance to them and and to try and like intentionally make use of the fact that these stories have been told again and again, rather than acting like you're the first person to ever do this trick. (laughs) Let's talk about the opening of the book. The three main characters, their sisters, Juniper, Agnes, and Bella, that's just their, well, they have much longer, they have longer names. <laughs> they have a lot of names. <laughs> they have a lot of names. But anyway, Juniper, Agnes, and Bella, they haven't seen each other in years, but at the opening of the book, they suddenly find themselves drawn to the same spot at the same time. What's going on? Well, I can't really tell you what's going on, because that's a huge spoiler. Um, but right, right. So, well, good point. So, Well, you instantly sort of realize that they all are converging in the city, which is not where they're from. And there's this symbol. It's, I mean, mild spoilers. It's a tower that appears in the middle of the city briefly and then disappears again. And the tower is like, you know, this old resonant symbol of witchcraft in this world or whatever. And I wanted it to feel a little bit like that old beloved fantasy trope of like, drawn together by fate you know like that that they have some destiny and they're all destined to be in this place at this time and then later there's a real reveal that like maybe it's not that (laughs) maybe it's all a lot more mundane because i love those sorts of moments what makes it particularly poignant is that they haven't seen each other in many years because there was a rupture in the family as well and so they might never have been brought back together that's the feeling if not for whatever circumstances or force or whatever yeah. has brought them together. So there's there's a poignancy to it. Yeah, I did. A, um, my own family has a number of dramatic rifts and unhealed wrongs and all this stuff up in both sides of my family tree. So I maybe indulged myself and made magic a solution, not just to political problems, but to personal ones or not a solution, but like entangled with personal as well as the political. Speaking of the political, Juniper, she's the most recent arrival to this city, which is called New Salem, which is an obvious nod to Salem, which sounds like in the book there's an old Salem, which sounds like Mm -hmm. Salem, Massachusetts, and the Salem witch trials, and Mm -hmm. it certainly hearkens to that, and there are references to that. So she's in New Salem, and after this incident that draws the sisters who haven't seen each other together... She wants to join the New Salem Women's Association, and she she thinks this is at the cutting edge of women's rights. It fits in with her sense of rebellion and her desire for freedom, and she ends up being disappointed by them. Can you talk about what 
disappoints her. Yeah, so the New Salem Women's Association is is definitely me playing a little bit with NASA, you know, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, like they have similar um, acronyms, uh, and which existed, the history of suffrage associations is always hard because they have a million different acronyms and they're always splitting and reforming. But NASA was the big one that was kind of doing a lot of this incrementalism and like practical, small state by state measures to get the vote for women. And like all respect to them, that's certainly a strategy. But Juniper in my book shares a lot more of the spirit of your Alice Pauls, your Emmeline Pankhurst, uh, Helen Foxes, like that branch of the suffrage movement, which is a lot more deeds, not words, a lot more actiony, a lot more um, less incremental, I guess. And so the thing that disappoints Juniper about that movement is is what is the same reason that Alice Paul went on to found the National Women's Party, you know, because like she finds it ineffective and weak and she's dissatisfied with the the scope of their ambition. And and they're also pretty uptight too. I mean, that's sort of our <laughs> more of a cultural issue, I guess, but then it but is. But it's also right, it's a class issue, you know, like the, these organizations were largely run by middle-class housewives and wealthy women who like didn't have to work. So they could like, this was like a hobby, you know, and that's like a totally different vibe for a revolution. <laughs> right, exactly. And they and they aspire to, I mean, do everything very properly. And Juniper eventually becomes outspoken about witchcraft, which to them is symbolic of, you know, it's not something they want to be associated with as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very like, this is me a little bit poking fun of the American suffrage movement, which, you know, it's great. They're heroes in there in certain senses, but like it's also playing respectability politics in a, in such a dedicated and, and limiting way that it really didn't include m- most women, I would say. Right. Well, we can talk a little bit more about that later because you have a character who uh, gives you an opportunity to, to, to talk about that. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit more about the next steps for these sisters because Juniper and her sisters end up forming an association of their own. And this is where we get to talk a little bit more about magic. They create the Sisters of Avalon. And I guess it's no secret. Obviously, we don't want to spoil the book, but it's called The Once and Future Witches. (laughs) So we know the story is about witches. What's the mission of the Sisters of Avalon? Yeah, so this is very much like like when Alice Paul split from NASA and formed the National Women's Party. Like it's it's an organization that wants more direct action in support of women's rights. But in this case, because I'm writing a fantasy novel, because that's who I am as a person, their vision of radicalism is to turn the women's movement into a witches' movement and to restore not only women's political power but their literal magical power. I want to get into that. How magic symbolizes political power in the book. It's presented initially as something that's just for women. Magic is something women do, but there is a reference to men's magic, and it's kind of put down. We learn a little bit more about that as the story goes on, but but it seems as if men have decided that magic is no good. It's sinful. It's evil. They want to suppress it, you know, and in a male-dominated society, they go a long way to do that. So magic is left only at the margins, and it's hidden in places, in, in fairy tales. And, you know, Bella becomes a librarian where she gets to kind of root out hidden fairy tales that, uh, excuse me, hidden uh, spells and such that might be written in the margins of fairy tale books. 
uh, and mothers <laughs> share like it. women's voices. I mean, you know, I went all the way with this metaphor. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so subtle, but subtlety is overrated. <laughs> so let's let, let's talk about it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The way magic, the way they still use it is in this very, I don't know if this will make sense, but it reminds me of the old television show Bewitched. And I, I, I love watching these old episodes because I just scratch my head. It's so 1960s. It's like, here is this, <laughs> This witch who has all the power in the world, she can live thousands of years, and all she wants to do with her magic is repress it and make pot roast for her husband and keep a perfect <laughs> home. Like, like, it's so like the fantasy of the man of the 1960s, you know, saying, no, no, and, and that's what she wants. She's yeah. like willing, of course, oh, yeah. she constantly is doing things behind his back and is really the one pulling the strings, so maybe there's some... Maybe there's something subversive about the story, although that might have been sort of that's just kind of the humor of it. I don't know how, how yeah. political it was. Yeah. But it reminds me of that, except she was a willing she was sort of willingly going along with the, the culture of the moment in the 60s or the 50s, 60s. We love a story collectively. We just love a story where people conspire in their own oppression. That just like right. legitimizes all of it, right? Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, it's okay. She doesn't mind. Look, she's, she's happy. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She would use her magic to clean the kitchen before he got home because she didn't have time to do it physically. And, and in your story, yeah. you know, women still have magic to maybe darn socks or to heat mm -hmm. their food more quickly, like these little, these little gestures. But there's this sense and knowledge that there was this vast magic, i.e. this vast power that, that was lost. And so that's what the sisters and the sisters of Avalon, the literal sisters, the Eastwood sisters, the three of them, and then their association, the sisters of Avalon, are seeking. Okay, so I feel like I've talked way too much. So <laughs> what's the role of magic in the book? And, and can you talk about the desire of the sisters and their friends to reconnect with the power of magic and how that parallels political power, voting yeah. rights, freedom? Yeah, no. So it's a pretty, in some ways, like a very obvious metaphor. Um, and I did steal this idea from my husband, who was like, you should do witch everything, because I wrote a witch librarian story, and it did well. And he was like, just like, witch whatever, witch activists, witch women's rights. And I was like, wait, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, because I think one of the things that fantasy does like well and is particularly suited to like as a genre is to take things that are that are not visible and that are often um, metaphorical and make them literal and real, right? So like women's power isn't something you can typically see and interact with. It's an idea. And I think in fantasy, why you know, making it into actual literal witchcraft, it's a it's an actual innate thing in each person that is visible in some ways. And so I think that metaphor kind of like does most of the work for me. And then in terms of like how magic works in the world, I started out like kind of with a little list of rules for myself about what I didn't want magic to be in this world. Um, and that's largely based on being a lifelong fantasy reader and finding some some kind of problems with the way magic often works. So I knew I didn't want it to be inherited. Like magic is not something that is in the blood or something because that has some weird implications. Uh, I didn't want it to be moralizing like it's not a good or an evil force uh, I didn't want it to be universally the same in every culture because that seems like nothing else is so why would magic be um, and I really didn't want it to care about chromosomes like I just refused to believe that magic itself would like buy into the gender binary that seems so lame and boring which actually presents some interesting problems because then it's like 
well, what is a witch? Is a witch just a woman with magic? And, and is this all culturally constructed? And, and so I had to like envision witchcraft as a universally available power and access to that power had been constrained and defined by existence under patriarchy like everything else. And so it took a lot of time <laughs> and planning and thinking to decide how it was going to play out in this world. I have to say, as you describe it, I mean, you've executed it so perfectly that I didn't see how much thought went into it. It was just so natural. I mean, yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense as you're describing it, but it seemed very organic in a way that was very understandable culturally. I mean, all those things made perfect sense. There were different people with different different groups of people with different ways of doing magic and different words. And it's like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> So let's talk about the character of Cleopatra Quinn. And I think she really, I mean, if there's any doubt that this is an American story, you, you just have to meet Cleopatra Quinn and, and you see <laughs> all that is American in her presence and in her relationship to the other characters. She is black and she can't join the New Salem Women's Association because the organization is, well, as you write, divided on the question of the color line. I have to say that gives me chills to read that because just the idea of that it's a question, that racism oh, can be... that's a quote. That's a literal quote. Oh, I'm sure it is because it reminds <laughs> me of the Nazis grappling with the Jewish question. Like, it's a yeah. question. And, and so it makes me think of, I don't want to name the person, but someone who <laughs> might say there's good people on both sides of something like this. Absolutely. Where, yes. Absolutely. Writing this in a post-2016 world was a trip. I bet. I bet. So so can you talk about the, the, the serious, nasty blind spots that the suffragettes had? Like many progressive movements and many movements that are dedicated to expanding rights, there are these ironies and contradictions and problems. Yeah, at least the ones led dominantly by white upper class people. They just <laughs> consistently have the same set of problems. Yeah, I think that is the problem with having white American suffragists as your heroes is that they are often, they're very rarely heroes, genuinely. And that's not to downplay the sacrifices that they made in the work that they did, which I am obviously very grateful for. But like, you know, it's, I think it's now being actually taught this way in classrooms. So it shouldn't be very shocking to say that it was often exclusionary, um, white supremacist, and not just, not just like, blind to race issues but like actively participating in the broader construction of the racial hierarchy in the u.s so like you know you've got like a few famous examples so you've got susan b willingly happily throwing black women under the bus in order to get southerners on board with the vote for white women and then you've got things like the first march on washington um which is a kind of a famous scene you got all these women dressed in white they've got banners and ida b well shows up and they, the organizers ask her to walk in the back because they're afraid the Southern delegation of women is going to be offended by a black woman, like walking out in front of the parade. Oh, and she's God. like, oh yeah, definitely for sure. And then she steps right out in front just as the parade starts when no one can stop her because she's a total, total badass. Um, sorry if I, I don't know if I can swear on this. Yeah, of I'm course. Sorry. She's no. amazing. Yeah. She she's deserves not, that. A badass. She deserves no. that. She deserves all of it. So you've got these like big moments, but it's more than just the big moments. You know, it's like the rhetoric of suffrage was in some ways built on on white supremacy. So like there, there's these posters that they made, these pro-suffrage posters that show 
black men in line to vote and they're portrayed as like drunken and slovenly and kind of disgustingly animalistic. Uh, and beside them, there are these sort of shining white, beautiful, civilized women who are presented as better voters. Like they, they literally used that argument wow. to build their own argument to, that they should, they're the more educated voter, you know, and that's the respectability politics that they were playing. That was this idea that if they showed themselves to be, upper middle class and white and married typically and mothers the the idea of a mother deserving a vote was a big one and all of these things that are not queer subversive black disabled anything else then they thought that they could somehow like earn the right to vote and in many ways that's what they did and that's how they got the vote in 1920 <laughs> oh my god that's <laughs> not that upsetting that's very upsetting <laughs> it's very upsetting <laughs> yeah and you think of all the stages of getting, bringing, you know, giving the vote. I mean, it's been doled out so parsimoniously to various groups. Oh, yeah. And even now, even to this day, as we are living through, you know, the idea of, of getting mean, to vote. I mean, if you're convicted of a felony in my state in Kentucky, you couldn't vote until 2020. That's real. You know? like, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's. It's kind of outrageous. I should also mention it's not like every white American suffragist was, was a total um you know, boot-looking traitor. There were two white women who stepped out with Ida B. Wells in front of that parade. So there were occasional people who understood that, like, you know, until all of us are free, none of us are free, kind of a rhetoric. But it was few and far between. One of the combinations of three that play a role in the story are the maiden, mother, and crone, which are archetypes from fairy tales. And Juniper, she is the maiden, understood to be the maiden, and Agnes is the mother, and Bella is theoretically the crone. And yet they don't really fit those stereotypes because, you know, Juniper isn't soft and she doesn't wear a daisy crown and Agnes isn't weepy and weak and doesn't die in childbirth like happens so often <laughs> in fairy tales. And, you know, Bella is not some old lady crone stirring a pot on the stove. She's canny and on top of her witchcraft game. Can you talk about why you wanted to play with these fairy tale types? Yeah, it comes back to kind of my relationship with fairy tales in general, which is like, like, I love them and I hate them at the same time. So the maiden mother crone triptych is something that I have always sort of, I think, fairly hated, because it's pretty gross to define a woman's existence by her reproductive state at that moment. Like, that's terrible. And we all can agree on that. But I also am just one of those people who's such a sucker for, like, ritual and symbol and all of that stuff. And and in some ways, I have felt my own life um, moving through these, these mythological sort of stages. Um, and so I'm both drawn to them and I hate them. So I knew I wanted the sisters to in some ways fulfill these archetypes but i also knew i didn't want those archetypes to be real like i didn't want them to be limiting i wanted to be like <laughs> embodying and subverting at the same time which just again much of this was overthought <laughs> when I, as i talk about this book i realize how much i sweat over it all and i am amazed that anyone is willingly reading it sometimes <laughs> As you say, there are stories that everyone's familiar with. So something registers about that triptych. And then when you play with it, you get a fresh look and you realize how they are confining and how they don't 
Well, what, to what defines a maiden? I don't know. Does that have to be married or not having or being a virgin? I guess that's being a virgin, actually. So they're I not think all it's virgins. Being a virgin, but I think in the ideal Western European sense, those th- two things would happen at the same time. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's just like this definition that you know everyone wants to rebel. No one wants to be defined by by any kind of type, and that's definitely true. The Eastwood sisters. So each chapter starts with a spell and. Interspersed among the chapters are also short fairy tales. And maybe maybe I could just pull out a spell like just to give people a feel for them because they sound familiar and then they're not. They're different. So here's one. <laughs> Jane and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, spill it thrice, say it twice, or soon it will get hotter. A spell against burns requiring clear water and a strong will. So... <laughs> Why did you want to include these? And I guess I'll also ask how you, I mean, it must have been just fun to compose them. I don't suppose you do any research to make a spell because. Oh, boy. Apparently you don't have a, a sense of me yet. I okay. Did. Well, you do. All right. It's funny because they read like recipes in a way. And then I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, a recipe, you have to have a test kitchen and you have to make sure it works. But you can't really make sure a spell works. Maybe you can. So I'm going to no, shut no, up no, no, and no. hear what no, you have to say. Uh, so the reason I included them in the first place is that I am bad at world building like that. That's, um, not one of my natural skills as a fantasy writer. I think that there are fantasy writers who just are like, you know, they've got maps, they've got encyclopedias, they know this entire secondary world that they've made and I don't understand it. They're amazing. They're magical. For me, this is the furthest I've ever departed from actual like real world history or in the present day real world stuff and so it, it was more world building that I'd ever done and I was very nervous about it and it turns out it shouldn't have surprised me the way that I like got to know the world and the culture was through the stories that they told right so like the only way I could felt like I could really get my head around it was thinking like well in this world if witchcraft was really real and all of the witches had been burned theoretically like how would that shape their narratives? And I decided all their fairy tales would be shifted towards witch tales and that all of these like nursery rhymes would sort of have actual meaning and weight to them. So (laughs) I should say the first draft of this book only had like mm, maybe 20 chapters, maybe 18, even less than that or something. And so I only had like 20 spells. And then I rewrote it all and it had like 42 chapters and that was a lot more spells. (laughs) I don't know if I would have made up that many if I had known how long it was going to be in the end. Um, And the process of making them up was I, I got a bunch of books of like old collections of nursery rhymes and folk songs and stuff and picked out the creepiest ones and put them all into a into a word document and then tried to find places where they sort of naturally lent themselves to different kinds of witchcraft so like the london bridge song has a second verse that's about the bridge falling down and and rust and bending and breaking so i was like okay that's my rust spell but it i spent way again just too much time on it Well, they're great. Most of them combine both like a tangible ingredient, like some kind of herb mm, or something mm-hmm. with with an emotion or with a desire. But it's a desire that anyone, I suppose, could have. So it does make them seem very accessible. But, <laughs> but an interesting alchemy of both kind of the psychic and the tangible, the physical. Yeah. And I did look up, I have a, my uh, closest friend from college works on a 
huge like commercial herb farm and so i was constantly like emailing her and being like with this herb does this make sense like what's this one supposed if i needed a healing herb what would it be Hmm. Okay. There you go. Research. So it's real. Some of them might actually work if only. No, it's, yeah. it's just the herb that works, though, not necessarily the. <laughs> yeah. the... And works, I think, is in a loose definition <laughs> scientifically. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, I'm curious when you said it was 20 chapters, then it became over 40. That's always fascinating to me about the process of, as a writer myself who is still, you know, trying to wrestle mm. with, you know, the shape of a manuscript. What is your process? Like, what was the journey? And it, and you must have written it fairly quickly because the 10,000 Doors of January didn't come out that long ago. And I think I read somewhere that you didn't have this started yet when you sold that one. No, I did. But there was a fairly long lead time. I think I had more like a, a year and three months, maybe a year and a half to do this one because I, I knew like 10,000 Doors I sold long before it was actually published. So I had a little bit extra time in there. Um but yeah, my writing process, I don't know if you watch the Great British Baking Show. No. <laughs> I mean, you're missing out. It's pandemic time. So I now know everyone time. loves it. I know everyone loves <laughs> I'm it. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sure you've heard that before. <laughs> but at some point, the judges come up to a guy and they're like, what happened? And he's like, started making it, had a breakdown, bon appetit. And that's sort of where I'm at. <laughs> that basically describes my writing process, particularly with this book. Second books are sort of notoriously hard. I thought that wouldn't apply to me and it turns out it did apply to me so I drafted it all in a sort of giant rush feeling like I was going to miss my deadline because I'd never had a deadline before and I turned it in by the deadline and I gave it to my editor and she was like (laughs) her edit letter started with something like we think you have a great start which is just absolutely devastating wow and she was completely right and I had felt that the whole like it wasn't right it wasn't coming out right and I had this idea of what I wanted to be and it was very far from that in that first draft and mainly the problem was that like I had all the same characters and most of the same actions compressed into about like I don't know 40 50,000 fewer words (laughs) and uh, I think my editor described it as feeling like a mattress shoved into a pillowcase like it just didn't work it, nothing had a chance to breathe like the characters didn't have a chance to have their full arcs like everything was just in compressed and sort of emotionless and so when I rewrote it I just let myself go like I, everything I wanted to put in there I put in there and it might have come out a little overlong but it's much better than it was and it's much closer to what I wanted it to be originally so you ended up adding more scenes or you made the scenes longer or it wasn't? Yeah, mostly more scenes. Like I did expand some scenes, but like mostly um, more and shorter scenes. So it became like shorter chapters and a lot more movement. Uh, I think in the original draft, each full chapter had been one sister's and it would alternate that way. And that was very forced and didn't work at all. And so in the in the rewrite... I sort of like scrambled all the scenes and it now alternates freely. There'll be like a thousand words from one sister and 2000 from another and 500 from another in like kind of a stream. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. They alternate, Uh, but sometimes within chapters. Yeah. 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 You write full time now, I understand, which is very exciting. It is very exciting. It doesn't always feel full time because I do have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and my husband 
is their primary caregiver, but still, they're like a force. They're like a presence to be reckoned with. Yeah, well, it's everyone now with young kids. Uh, so many people that are locked at home with them. It's, it's interesting, actually. I don't yeah. know how anyone gets through their day. Do you feel like sharing what you're working on now? Like, what, what can readers expect next from you? I am working on another book, but it's not announced, so I can't really say anything. But the next thing I have is I got to write a novella for Tor.com that comes out next, maybe summer, maybe fall. I don't think they've decided, but it comes out next year anyway. And it's, I got to do a Sleepy Beauty retelling and it was so much fun. I had a ridiculous amount of fun. So uh, my pitch for it was that I wanted to Spider-Verse a fairy tale. Which I don't know if you're familiar with. Yeah, no, sure, <laughs> sure. Alternate, alternate Sleeping Beauties, different ones. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I like I loved Spider Verse. It was actually my birthday a couple of days ago, and what I picked to do for my birthday was let my children, who are definitely too young for it, watch Spider Verse with me. So anyway, I loved the movie. Me too. And the thing that I loved the most about it was that it was like, it knew exactly how many times you've seen Spider-Man movies. Like it was completely aware of, you know, you all know with great power comes great responsibility. You all know what happens to Uncle Ben. You all know how he learns his powers, like all these patterns. And it just played with it and it had so much fun. So I did that with Sleeping Beauty and it was really, really, really fun. <laughs> oh, great. Well, that's something definitely to look forward to in the in, into the into the in the interregnum. Is that the right word between the <laughs> sure, once and future you, witches <laughs> and the secret project that has not yet been announced? <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. It was a fun read, and it was fun having you on the show. Thank you so much. These were great questions. Well, I've been spending this episode with Alex E. Harrow, author of The Once and Future Witches, published by Red Hook just this past October. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so others can find the show more easily. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show, and I'm grateful to the founder and editor of the New Books Network, Marshall Poe, and the network's co-editor, Leanne Wilson, for being the heart, mind, and soul of the network. Keep reading, keep wearing your mask, and keep being as kind as you can, because we need all the kindness we can get these days. Bye for now. <laughs>